I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Robert Porter, all about canine rehabilitation and therapeutic exercise. Robbie was one of the first people in the world to obtain his certification in canine rehabilitation from the University of Tennessee in 2001. He is well known for his innovative approach to therapeutic exercise using positive reinforcement training. Robbie spends most of his time running the rehab department at South Paws Veterinary Surgical Specialists, but also travels often to teach his force-free exercise program to veterinary professionals and canine performance trainers. To address the need for ongoing conditioning and fitness beyond rehab, Robbie developed the It's Possible Fitness and Conditioning System. It's designed to help clients understand how to correctly and safely exercise their dogs so that they can become stronger with a goal of reducing injury and improving performance. Robbie joins us all the way from Louisiana in the US. And how are you today? Very good. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Um, and so, Robbie, I have shared with our guests a little bit of background um, about you and um, and what your sort of um, day-to-day, um, day in the life of, of Robbie Porter is. But before we get sort of into, into that, are you able to share a little bit about your sort of career and personal background with us and how you actually came into this field of rehabilitation and therapeutic exercise for dogs? Yeah, I can do that. Um, I kind of had an eclectic college career for a while and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was actually a fine arts major for several years and um, then I found myself with a stray dog and realized that I kind of needed a a steady income and I started working at a veterinary hospital in my my area and I fell in love with it. Okay. And uh, I I worked as a veterinary technician for several years and um, I really couldn't get enough of being in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first time in my life where I felt very, very comfortable with the people that I worked with, with what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even I'd, I'd work general practice throughout the week, but I'd even, you know, go work uh, an emergency clinic on the weekend. Wow. And, um, yeah, and, you know, I was kind of a workaholic about it because I really couldn't get enough knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. And the first referral hospital that opened within my area, um, my my actual sister-in-law at the time uh, was managing, and um, she had a, a baby, and I went to go um, see her in the hospital, and she said, hey, Robbie, we really need an overnight critical care technician. I said, yeah, I'll do that. And she's like, well, let me explain. We don't really need one all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and this was back in the, in the late 90s, and she's like, well, look, we'll get you a cell phone. It was like this big, huge cell phone. And um, we'll call you when um, an animal needs you, and then you can come in and you get X amount of money and you spend the night and, you know, then you leave in the morning. I said, you know what? I can do that. Yeah. And in doing that, um, I started seeing a lot of post-surgical cases, mostly um, hemi laminectomies and and TPLOs and, you know, your basic Mm -hmm. run-of-the-mill surgical practice. And um, I really didn't see a whole lot of physical therapy happening. No. Um, on my personal side, I've always been an avid bike rider and mostly rode BMX. So I've sustained 
loads and loads of injuries. <laughs> Not surprising. And I've been, yeah, <laughs> I've been in and out of physical therapy myself many times and, you know, suffer with some chronic pain here and there and so forth. And, you know, exercise was always the thing that got me back. And mm. um, I kind of felt like we were really lacking that in veterinary medicine. And so I started researching the subject and, you know, um, I mean, I had my nights at the hospital where I had to stay awake. And so, you know, I'd spend nights reading research papers and searching the internet for people who were doing physical therapy on animals. And, you know, there was probably about four or five that I found back then. And I, 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 I took their business models and I wrote the hospital owner a business plan. I barely knew what a business plan was at the time, but <laughs> I had some friends that did and they helped me out. And so, um, I pitched the idea to her and she said, you know what? I think that's a good idea. Uh, why don't you go ahead and do that? And here's a little bit of money wow. and you can start. And so, yeah, um, it, it took about a year or so to really kind of get things rolling and moving in the direction that I wanted them to. But um, eventually I ended up um, not working nights for that hospital anymore and going towards days. And I'd scrub in surgery two days a week and I'd do rehab three days a week. That's awesome. And so a lot of the time, I yeah, I get to see cases from the very, very beginning, from when they, they walked into the hospital, how they were worked up and how they were diagnosed to going into surgery to direct acute aftercare as well as care throughout, um, you know, four to four to eight week period. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. Um, when right before or right, right about the same time, university of Tennessee came out with their continuing education program to certify, um, people in, um, in canine rehab. And I was actually part of, um, the first class that was certified. Wow. And, yeah, so it was kind of nice because um, I, I actually didn't get into vet school. Uh, my grades just weren't there. You know, my the the vet school in this in my area, you know, you pretty much had to have you know a four point yeah. to get in. It's like that and in Australia mine, too. Black, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a fairly good student, but I'm not a great student. Mm. So you know, I'd, I'd I'd always you know get by at like you know a three five or something like that. It just wasn't enough to get in. But, you know, I kind of felt like, well, you know, if, if I can't be a good doctor, then I can be a great practitioner. Yeah. And um, I really kind of focused on that for many years and trying to figure out, and I still do, try to figure out what exactly are we really supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I very much try to keep a very open mind about that. Um, I even get into little trends of, you know, working kind of the same kinds of exercises and, you know, probably in the last five years or so, I've really tried to whittle down and try to create a true exercise program mm -hmm. that's very easily trained and repeatable. And that's what I kind of use in practice today. Mm. Um, I've always kind of felt like exercise was very investigative. You know, when, when underwater treadmills came out, it was amazing to me at least that we could all of a sudden look at dogs in a static position, you know, but they were moving at the yeah. same time, yeah. you know? So you, you didn't have to see them, you know, go far away from you and back and cross your visual path. You could really study their movement a whole lot better in there. Yeah. And, you know, rehab has never been like a, a huge booming business, you know? Um, so I'd, I'd have a lot of time to spend with my patients early in my career. And um, I got to study that movement a lot. Mm. Um, 
now I work at a very busy practice. We see, you know, between 20 and 30 patients a day. You know, we don't have a whole whole lot of extra time with things. But I still kind of try to hold on to that idea that exercise should also be very investigative. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, one of the first things that I do when I assess a patient is um, really I just want attention from them. Um, and I train kind of bizarrely. I, I always use a bowl of food. And yeah. I actually started using a bowl of food because um, uh, one of the bigger agility trainers in the world, Sylvia Turkman, um, used a bowl to target animals um, for agility training. And the people in my area that were teaching me agility, uh, we always use like little white tops from sour cream containers and things like that to target. And I thought Sylvia's idea of using the bowl was actually quite brilliant because the dog always gets excited when you bring out their bowl. Yeah, right? definitely. And it, it, it allows that animal to all of a sudden focus all their attention on you. And, you know, everybody likes attention on them. I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why we have, you know, well, we have dogs, dogs because, yeah. you know, people like to see that excitement, right? Yeah. They, 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 they love to feed their dogs and, you know, their dogs are so, um, you know, thankful for that. And I really like that too. That's, that's a really neat thing. So, you know, in, in my practice today, basically, you know, we have about a $400 um, rotisserie chicken budget in a month and <laughs> we buy about that amount of chicken every month. And every day, my my partner, I walk in, and she's always there before me, and she's sitting on the floor cutting up chicken and putting it in a stainless <laughs> steel bowl. And uh, we have a little fridge in the rehab office that holds nothing but chicken. <laughs> uh, chick- if I always, um, I used to work in practice, and if there was a dog that refused chicken, you knew there was something really wrong because roast chicken, what we call in Australia, rotisserie chicken, same thing, is the best, <laughs> most enticing food ever. For a dog, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good bird, you know, and um, it's, it's highly palatable, and it's usually pretty easy on the stomach too. Yeah, you know, which is very helpful. And I mean, not all patients eat, you know. I mean, not all patients have this wonderful experience, you know, when when they go in for surgery and they're poked and prodded and things like that. Yeah, but you know, um, those dogs usually also suffer from probably a lot of anxiety disorders that yeah. we aren't even really diagnosing in, in, in dogs and behavioral medicine at this point. Or if we are, I'm not really aware of it. That's a really interesting point. And do you find actually that the work that you're doing with the exercise program and the rehabilitation helps with their anxiety? Do you think, just anecdotally? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would think so. Absolutely. I mean, mm. I, you know, um, um, I saw, I think, um, six new visits this morning and, um, all of them came in and they were all slightly scared and fearful. And, you know, I, I never try to prejudge, you know, but I do, um, very, very easily see anxiety in dogs. Yeah. I feel very empathetic to that too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when they come in and they're scared, you know, I have a, a room, they can't really gain a whole lot of speed or anything else like that. It has a nice rubber floor. Um, so, you know, the first time that they come in, you know, I take their e-collars off. I usually see them at two weeks. So, you know, we still have staples or, um, you know, sutures in and things like that. So I take their e-collars off. I take them off a leash and I ask the owner to sit down on a nice comfy couch and I say, just let them walk. Yeah. And I think that really helps in itself to acclimate themselves to the room and what's going on. 
And, you know, I mean, unless they're the absolute first appointment, which that never really happens because we always have some in-house patients too, there's always remnants of the, the, the lasso on the floor. Yeah. So <laughs> they go around, they sniff around, you know, which can be an anxiety behavior anyway, but they sniff around. And, you know, I usually see if they're really interested in food just in those first few seconds because yeah. they, they will find something. Yeah, and then you know, I I, I I don't even look at their incisions or anything else before I do anything. I I grab a bowl, and if they if their eyes light up when they see the bowl, then I'm like, okay, this is going to be a pretty good, good session. Yeah, <laughs> and if they, eat, you know, I feed with a nice open hand. I never take it away. Um, most of the training that I do is is basically a form of luring, but mm-hmm. um, you know, luring has gotten kind of a bad name in, in training. Uh, mostly because I think people do it in a way that actually teases the dog. Mm. They say, hey, here's the reward. Now I'm going to pull it away from you without giving it to him. Yeah. And the way I train is that I always take that piece of food out. I always feed with an open hand. I say, you know what? If you come to my hand to get that food, it's only fair for me to give you that food. Yeah. I never move it. If, 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 If I've chosen the wrong, what we call the reward position, then that was my fault, not the dog's fault. And the dog should be rewarded regardless. Yeah, they've got to trust and you. That was kind of, yeah, you, you have to be able to build that trust, yeah. you know? And that's kind of how I start doing prop exercise. And the other thing that I do um, that I think helps reduce a lot of that stress is that if, if they eat a piece of food from me, well, I want to de-stress them because coming to me even can sometimes be a little stressful. Yeah. You know, eating from a stranger can be a little stressful. Yeah. So what I do is I throw a piece of food and... I work in the same area every day, and so I throw that piece of food near the couch that the owner is sitting in. And so the the dog turns around and goes and gets that food and is is de-stressed and either can go to that owner and go, you know what, I don't want to play this game, or they can come to me and get fed again. Mm. And I think that's super important because when you throw that out, you're investigating their movement too. Yeah. You're not just de-stressing them. You actually get to see them turn and pivot and accelerate and decelerate when they go get it. And it sounds like a really simple thing, but I just call it the back and forth game because really, you know, that's all I'm doing. I'm throwing chicken out. I'm allowing them to go get it. And then they're turning and coming back and eating from me again. And if they're doing that three, four times in a row without breaking focus at all, then it's very easy to put a prop between me and the dog. Right. And have them start stepping on a prop. Right. And for a long time, I really struggled with, you know, how do you train prop exercise with a dog who does not have any idea about training or prop exercise training. Mm. And I trained a lot of different types of exercises, but it it became very clear to me after I did several large workshops with a bunch of trainers that logically we should really be um, having an intent to, um, to train what I call primary position because Primary position is really the first thing that you kind of have to teach if you want a dog on a prop. And what primary position is, is four limbs or the front limbs on a prop. And that's it. And so is this like a sort of a box or something? It could be really any prop. I usually use these little, um, they're called balance pads, and they're about two inches. Um, Y'all use centimeters like normal people. Um, But (laughs) that's probably like maybe about 20 centimeters or so. Um, high, they're foam, they're, they're kind of squishy memory foam things, and, and they're usually, you know, I don't know, about um, 
14 inches by, I don't know, about 18 inches or so. Okay. And it doesn't seem like a big prop or anything else like that. It's not a, a hard prop to stand on, but you have to kind of start somewhere. Mm. And, you know, if, if you work in a referral hospital a lot, you kind of realize that dogs have more hind limb problems than you than they do forelimb problems. Yeah. And so you kind of want to see how much weight you can shift to their rear, too. If, 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 if they come in after a knee surgery and they aren't putting any weight on it and they step up on a, a, a little prop like that, and many times you can get them to put their, their foot down all, all by themselves mm. by having, you know, one, elevated their front limb. But two, if you have control over their head position, which you do, if you have a dog who's eating chicken and you have control over your hand, then you can control their head position. And you can have their head position a little higher to shift that weight back. Or you can even turn it to the opposite side of the rear leg and get them to shift that weight that way as well. You know, wow. so, so I think that's so a really important exercise. Yeah. The, the, the other part that made sense to me when I started teaching it kind of on a mass scale was that if we didn't teach something like that and um, we started building value for dogs jumping up on like peanuts or, you know, these larger kind of props, then we started, you know, training dogs to really want to be on those spots because that's, that's, that's where they were getting the most food, right? That's mm. where they were getting rewarded. They started really liking it. Well, the problem exists that dogs are going to offer behavior. And let's say you're not near a peanut that's, that's, stabilized, that's not stabilized or anything else. What are they going to do is try to jump up on that thing. And they could potentially hurt themselves with a piece of, with a piece of exercise equipment. Mm. And so, I usually try to very much show that dog and teach that dog that they should always stand in primary position right. and that that's where they're going to get the most rewards. And if I ask them to go further, if I ask them to get all, all, all four of their legs up on a prop mm -hmm. or go over a prop or anything else like that, I'm always going to ask for primary position first. Mm -hmm. And they're going to look for a new cue before they do anything else. Mm. And so it actually acts as like a safety net too, you know, yeah. because if you look away from a dog just for a second, even just to change your props around or something like that, you know, they're going to try to offer those behaviors like, oh, well, he stopped paying attention to me. I'm going to do something so that yeah. he does pay attention to me and so that I do get rewarded again. Yeah. And that's the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I started doing that several years ago as like a good safety mechanism and it's actually worked out really well. You know, I mean, I get now dogs that I've seen five, six, seven times and so so on. They come in and they just put front limbs on a prop and wag their tail and wait for me. <laughs> it's really very simple, isn't it, when you break it down like that? People overcomplicate training so much. Yeah, they do. And um, it's, it's really quite hilarious because I go and teach this, you know, you know usually once a month or something to a, a group of trainers. And they're like, oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> that was really simple. But I think it really should be that way. Yeah. You know, I mean, exercise should be something that can be given to everybody. Yeah. Not just people, not not just kids or adults or, you know, people with money or people not with money, people with disease, people, um, you know, recuperating. Exercise should be, you know, given to everyone, yeah. and dogs included. Yeah. You know, and it, it should be easy to do. You know, yeah. if it's not easy to do, if you make these, these systems so complicated that nobody can do it, 
well, then you're you're really doing a disjustice, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You're making it so that they can't have exercise and they can't have good, safe exercise. Yeah, you know? so... So I really enjoy making the system that way. Yeah, so that... Um, I, I have read about your unique system that you've developed and obviously it starts in the consult room, but then it must extend out of it when the client has gone home with the dog. So so can you tell us a bit about um, sort of how you structure that for when the client's not there with you in the room? Well, I usually kind of go back to that back and forth game, you mm-hmm. know, because people can generally do that very easily. And they don't have to have much skill except to be able to feed a dog, you know, with a nice open hand and not move that hand and to throw chicken out. You know, and, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of equate that to playing hopscotch when you're a kid. If you can throw a piece of chalk and, you know, do a little hopscotch, you could probably, you know, train a dog to do exercise. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as far as clinic goes, a lot of the time, I don't do a whole lot of home care beyond that. Okay. Um, I try to get the dog to a point where, where you know, they can rehabilitate on their own and get to a point where they're they're functioning just as good as they were before surgery or at least close to it, you mm-hmm. know, realistically close to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, because really, we, we also kind of need to think about, you know, um, principles of uh, of exercise. And one of the big principles that, 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 that I talk about a lot when I do lecture is the SED principle. And the SED principle really stands for Specific Adaptation to Imposed Demand. Mm-hmm. And it really just means that whatever we do, we're going to get better at but it's going to be very specific, mm-hmm. you know? So doing exercises is great. It is. It's wonderful, especially when you need to um, meet a patient's needs where they have functional, like true functional limitations or disabilities, mm. you know? And making decisions on how much a dog should exercise or how little a dog should exercise, how they're exercising, their form, all these things, are, are really important. And I think that's something that a therapist has to do, you know, yeah. when you turn it over to a, 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 a person who, you know, doesn't really understand dog training, doesn't really understand, you know, behavior that much beyond their own dog's behavior. You know, when you, you put it on them and, you know, they don't want to really understand the pathology or anatomy or, you know, any of the biomechanics involved, then that also poses huge limitations to that person's ability to help their dog, Mm. you know. But you can do nice, simple things like that back-and-forth game. You can, you know, have them, you know, understand basic variables of exercise like, you know, speed, duration, frequency, Mm -hmm. you know. And if you can explain those things to them, then they can get their dog back into their normal routine very easily. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side of that, you do have people who are much more proactive about, you know, trying to prevent injury in the first place. Yeah. Those people, I think, have much more motivation to be able to do a lot more home care. Those people are the people who are generally in in, in the dog sports that are training their dogs through positive reinforcement or they're they're basic dog trainers in general, you know, and they're looking for more, um, you know, preventative type exercises or do- or exercises that get dogs in better shape, you know? Yeah. So this is where like the conditioning comes in. Yeah. You know, and as simple as my system really is, it's still fairly complicated. Mm. You know, I mean, I see, you know, between 12 and 14 um, participants in a workshop that I'll do. And, you know, I, I, I generally lecture on a Friday night 
And then we go through six very specific exercises um, Saturday and Sunday. And everybody has to understand the training system. Everybody has to understand the exercises. Everybody, you know, gets to do all of them. And towards the end of class, the dogs know it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, the people know it. Um, I'd say they know probably about 60, maybe 65% of it if I'm lucky, you know? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, people have ha- have their own hang-ups about how they're trained, and, yeah. you know, some of them have some physical limitations themselves as well. And, um, you know, I mean, my system does take some body mechanics, and it does take some practice in getting it, because there are some, some kind of inherent trends that I see people do, like dragging lures, like dragging them through space instead of keeping it, you know, whether... They're inadvertently just teasing the animal, playing keep away with the reward, mm. but they don't know it. And they don't even see it. And, you know, I do a lot of online consultation. Actually, the other day, um, a, a student of mine was working on one of the more advanced floor exercises that I do, and um, you could see her moving her, her her reward in the video that she sent me. And she's all the way in Canada. Um, and as soon as I, I I picked up the phone, I said, "Well, you know, you're moving your reward." You know, and that's why she's apprehensive about wanting to get to it. And she immediately saw it and she sent me a video the next day and the dog was completely fixed. Wow. (laughs) Because, yeah, and those things happen even with very advanced people. I mean, and this person's on the world team in Canada in agility. So she's a very, very good trainer. Yeah. Sometimes you do still need to have that expert opinion that has trained it to like thousands of dogs and that's yeah. where I'm at in my career. I've, yeah. I've kind of trained the same thing over and over and over and over again so that I can see those trends yeah. and fix them very easily. So you know? this um, this sort of training system you're talking about now um, is ob- obviously if people are doing agility and they're more interested in um, preventative um, exercises and conditioning their, their pets, um, how does that sort of differ from a post-surgical case. I mean, it, it might, I, this might be a stupid question, but do you take a completely different approach to the, um, you know, your, your agility clients and the people who are just wanting to condition their dogs that haven't injured themselves or had any surgery to the ones that are actually in rehab? Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful question. I don't think that's a stupid question at all <laughs> because I, I think it's one of the most misunderstood things in, in veterinary medicine is what I've had to kind of battle, you know, for a long time too, because you know, really like, you know, a, a surgeon puts lots and lots of work into an animal and they, you know, talk to the client and they say, hey, look, this is going to cost thousands of dollars. And people put, you know, physical work into this. They put emotional um, work into this. They put financial work into, you know, this thing. And then, you know, this this crazy guy who, you know, you know does, does exercises with dogs says, oh, yeah, we should do this, this, and this, and this, mm. you know, and that's been a battle for a long time, but in reality, you know, therapeutic exercise, you know, we can adjust that to the patient's needs. Mm. And many times, you know, the patient may only be able to move its head, you know, like I deal with a lot of neurologic cases. You know, one of my favorite things to rehab and one of my favorite cases to rehab is the most frustrating thing out there, which is cervical disc disease, you know, and you have, you know, basically a dog who can't move any of its limbs and sometimes can't even write itself into a sternal position. Mm. But to me, I say, well, you know, can a dog eat? Can a dog turn its head? Can we teach the dog how to get up into a sternal position and work the muscles that are actually working Mm. right now? Mm. You know, and so those cases, you know, 
this kind of correlates to your question. And I'm going to get back to that. I know it's kind of far off, but <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm going to get there. You know, um, you know, having a dog turn its head doesn't seem like a very, you know, therapeutic exercise. But in that case, it kind of is. Yeah. And you know, I, I I see a lot of therapists putting a dog like that in an underwater treadmill so that the treadmill can support its weight, and then you know, try and get it to walk and so forth. And to me, um, that's kind of skipping over a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, we kind of have to teach the dog some fundamentals. We have to get the dog to be able to use its core even or its trunk to be able to, you know, flip sides so that, yeah. you know, when it's lying there and, you know, some of these have like, you know, three month recoveries, sometimes even longer than that, you know, they can have pressure sores and things like yeah. that. We need to start combating that as soon as possible. Yeah. So that dog can actually even just change position a little bit, yeah. you know, because if you have a dog who isn't, well, guess what? They're 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 also going to be very depressed and yeah. they're not going to feel very good about themselves. And, you know, then they start losing motivation and drive to even live. Oh, that's so sad. You know, so that's 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 one extreme on that where you know, and and we we can kind of look at basic ex- exercise variables. Um, you know, I usually outline seven when I'm teaching: and speed, duration, frequency, range of motion, plane of motion, body position, and resistance. Mm-hmm. Well. Speed and intensity is the first one, right? That's the first variable. Mm-hmm. So we can take, you know, basic head turns and, you know, it's not very intense, you know, but it is intense to that patient yeah. with cervical disc disease. That yeah. is where, you know, their their big lesion is. That's where their problem is, you know. But on the flip side of that, let's look at the agility dog. Well, the agility dog, we're also going to, manipulate head position with reward placement but the the intensity of the exercise is going to be a whole lot different yeah it's an athlete you know yeah and i mean there's there's lots of lots of different you know flavors of athletes of dogs as well as people you know i mean you can have bowlers versus you know tennis players right you can have you know a dog who does you know like barn hunt to a dog who competes in in world-class agility Mm. you know and you can see the differences of intensity within those actions, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to kind of make it a little bit more simple, you know, in rehab, I think we do more things that are targeted towards acceleration. Okay. Getting up, walking, kind of basic function. Yep. Where in, in dogs that, are, that already have those kinds of things, where are our true limitations? And I actually fought with that goal for a long time, you know, because people would bring me their dogs and go, you know, can we condition my dog to be stronger and faster and, you know, a better athlete? And I'd say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, I started researching more and more and more, and, and I realized, well, you know, we need to kind of look at, where injury happens if we're going to have injury prevention exercises. Mm. Well, the bulk of injury really comes from genetics. Yeah, <laughs> right? confirmation. But there is usually an environmental trigger. Mm. And that environmental trigger generally happens during deceleration. Right, okay. Right? Yeah. It, it's never how fast we're going that gets us in trouble. It's actually how fast we come to a stop. And, yeah, stopping and turning and things. Yeah, stopping and turning. So what happened with cars? You can look at cars. Cars are a great analogy, I think, because, you know, we went from cars that had very little suspension systems and these, you know, really rudimentary brake systems 
to cars today that have highly advanced suspension systems to help you turn mm. and these wonderful tires they help with traction, traction control systems and, you know, anti-lock brake systems and very, you know, wonderfully designed brakes. Mm. And that's what I think the the athlete needs more than anything else. So the the class that I teach for injury prevention is is very similar to what I do in rehab, but the goals are different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the goal for the athlete is always going to be building strength, but more importantly, skill yeah. within deceleration. Yeah. And that's where, like, I mean, like, you know, I mean, one of the things that, you know, people kind of associate me with is, you know, getting dogs to do strange things on treadmills, <laughs> you know, and that really came from a, a, an agility patient who had a hyperextension injury in their carpus. And you know, I said, well, how can I work that flexor group? And in reality, I'd need an uh, 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 um, uh, uh, eccentric type muscle contraction to work that flexor group versus a concentric. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do that through normal walking. I needed to have the dog walk backwards. Yeah, okay. And so um, I taught the dog basically to put its front limbs on the front of the treadmill. And I built lots of value for that. And then I turned the treadmill on. And then I had its front limbs walking backwards. <laughs> and it took about five minutes. Wow. And that was like eye-opening to me. I said, whoa, wow, you know what? Chris Zink and some of these other kind of gurus were talking about like having dogs walk backwards with all four limbs and stuff like that. And like, man, that's, that's very difficult to do. But, you know, the bulk of the injuries that I'm seeing are in four limbs when it comes to performance dogs. Right. Mm. And so now I can work those muscle groups in a way less intensely than they would in real life. And I can also change their body positions quite well and change their range of motion as well as the resistance that those four limbs are under. So, you know, if you're the front of your treadmill is a foot off the ground and you have the dog step up on it, well, then they have a sloping top line. Most of their weight is actually put on their rear limb and very little is actually put on their front limb. Mm. Mm. And then as, as time goes on, you can progress that exercise, right? You can get their, their, their back feet up on maybe a prop and then start changing that body yeah. position yeah. And increase or decrease your range of motion as well as your resistance that that dog is going through. And then, you know, if you're using a treadmill, it's very easy to change the speed, which is, you know, our first variable of exercise. And it's that's that's an interchangeable word with intensity, too. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty easy to do that. Wow. You know, the other part of it was, well, you know, if, if walking backwards helps you stop, then you also need to realize that turning is a decelerating type action. And we probably need to work in abduction, adduction or mm. sideways walking as well as obliques. Mm-hmm. And so the dog doesn't really care, you know, where it steps on the treadmill. All it knows is, you know, well, you know, when I step on that treadmill and that guy asked me to, I get, I get chicken. chicken. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can have... Yeah, I mean, you, you you can have a dog walk sideways just as easily as backwards. And, yeah. You know, those things are actually a lot easier to teach than having all four limbs on the treadmill at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect so, sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually doing a little webinar, um, I think, next week for a, um, an online pet health group. And that's what we're really focusing on more than anything. Yeah. And that's what I call treadmill tricks. 
Yeah. And it'll kind of go over how exactly I teach that and a nice step-by-step process. So are you, do you quite commonly, um, like say you've got your, your sort of general practitioner vet, that's what they're called in Australia, um, your GP vet. Do you often give workshops and obviously you're doing a webinar, but how can you teach people who might want to learn some of your techniques and just, and on a lower scale and a lesser scale, use the techniques in their case management? Do you sort of often integrate yourself into general practitioner um general practitioners sort of continuing education in that way? Um, I do on a very kind of personal um, uh, level. Yeah. Um, I've, I've offered consultations to, you know, loads and loads of veterinary hospitals throughout my career. Um, and many times I'll, I'll repeat, like I actually even had a, um, a veterinarian in Houston who would bring me in. He actually put me on retainer for about two years and he'd bring me in every six weeks to teach his staff That's great. and to teach him yeah. a lot of these techniques. You know, and we work side by side. And actually, he was very instrumental in in um, helping me um, really identify the important concepts that I was really trying to teach, and how to really communicate those things. Yeah. Um, and that was very very helpful to me. You know, um, because when you do things like that, when you have teaching engagements like that, then it allows you to. Yeah, I mean, anybody can do it. But can you really teach it? Can, can, yeah. can you leave that room with people with that knowledge? Yeah. And that's a very difficult thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a skill, but it also takes, you know, really, really good, good communication. Yeah. You yeah. know, so I do offer those things. Um, you know, I, I keep working on online classes and they never really kind of come out. <laughs> 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 and probably every one of these things, a, a question like that comes out. They're like, well, when are you going to really do online classes? And I'm like, yeah, I film them and I edit them and, and I'm just not happy with it. <laughs> yeah, you're obviously quite a perfectionist. I you know, can relate. <laughs> I, 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 I am in that way. And, you know, um, it's, it's very difficult to let that go sometimes. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 45 years old and you know, I'm starting to be able to let a lot of that stuff go and you, yeah. you might see it very soon. You know, um, <laughs> Hopefully. I've, been, uh, I have two women who, uh, I have two women who, who work for me who, um, kind of do all my workshops and teaching engagements and they organize them and, you know, write all the contracts and pretty much all the behind the scenes. And, yeah. um, yeah. one of them might come hang out with me for another couple of weeks or so and, and we might just film the whole thing and she might just take over so I don't have any um, creative yeah. <laughs> <laughs> point on it. Yeah. Where I'm going to go, no, that's not exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes um, the, the pro- progress is better than perfection and we've just sort of got to, um, you know, move move forward with things. It's hard though. I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd really like you to tell my brain that though. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, a, um, a fellow, I'm a fellow sufferer, so I completely understand. It's very hard, but um, but yeah, no, it does sound like you're you're nearly there mentally. So that's exciting. And does that mean that um, practitioners all over the world will be able to access um, you <laughs> more easily? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah, it, it, it's been kind of an interesting journey because really it wasn't until about five or six years ago where um, ag- uh, agility in the, the the sporting dog world really saw value in conditioning. Mm. And, you know, I remember, you know, 
10, 12, even 15 years ago, people would go, hey, can you come do a lecture for our club? And we're not going to pay you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd go do them. (laughs) (laughs) I'd go do them just for the experience and to try to get my name out there. Yeah. And to share your knowledge. Yeah, people still approach me and they're like, hey, can you come do a lecture for our club? And I'm like, yeah, I want you to talk to my my people who organize those things yeah. and they'll tell you how much it'll cost That's and all great. kind of stuff. And, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it's very, very different. But yeah. the, the veterinary community, I think, is really just starting to kind of put that on their plate too. And mm. I've been approached by, you know, loads and loads of, uh, of veterinary professionals. Hey, can you come to my practice? I've been to loads and loads of practices. I've talked at many symposiums, mm-hmm. you know, and taught those things, you know, um, but now I think there's such a bigger, um, kind of viewpoint of low stress handling and positive reinforcement training yeah. that people are starting to really engage in that to a much higher level. Yeah. You know, I see less and less, you know, choke collars and pinch collars and, you know, electric collars and things like that. Yeah. Um, I see more people going, you know what? Yeah. I really like the way you work. I mean, yeah. most of the time I sell rehab because. I fed their dog chicken, yeah. you know, and, yeah. you know, the, the staple of suture removal didn't stress them out, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're like, you know, my dog would have fun coming to this thing yeah. and doing this. Yeah, and, it's a form you know, of mental therapy. They say that it's for, for recovery, mm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah, and that kind of circles back to your whole anxiety thing. I mean, yeah. I think... Uh, I think people have anxiety about going to the veterinary hospital. I think they have the same kinds of anxieties that parents have with kids too. Like, yeah. you know, well, if my dog doesn't act right, if yeah. they don't, they don't, you know, behave themselves, then I'm a bad dog parent. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's not true. You no. know, it's not true at all. Yeah. You know? And that's one of the things that, that I really try to to express to my clients is that, you know, your poor dog was, you know, poked and prodded <laughs> and brought through surgery and nobody can verbally tell this dog or even, you know, visually tell this dog that this is good for them. Yeah, <laughs> I know. know. Yeah. It, it, it just can't happen. I know. I struggle with that all the time. It, 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 it's a big struggle in, yeah. in my mind. Yeah. And I think it's a big struggle for patients, mm. you know. And yeah. some of them, you know, they don't care. You know, they're like, you know what? You can beat me in the head with a brick, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to work just as hard for I you. I just want and the chicken. Ones, you look at him funny. Yeah, and, they, and they're like, oh, my God, he looked at me. I'm going to run away. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and they're yeah. all those personalities. Oh, yeah, and, totally. You know, I think that's one of the wonderful things about working with animals is that you get to see all those personalities. You get to, you know, experience all those things, and you get to help all of them get through their hard time, too. Yeah, you're you're almost um, as much as a physical therapist. You're a um, psychological therapist for these patients as well, by the sounds of it, and probably for their owners. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny you say that because I actually come from a family of psychologists. Oh well, there you go. So, it's in your blood. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> psychological and mental health has always been like you know, a, a big topic at the dinner table. Yeah. And at, at holidays, like that, you know. And it continues to be. <laughs> it's so nice that you get to really combine, you know, your your true passion with with that um, sort of family interest and something that you've grown up with as well. Yeah, it, it really has been a wonderful, wonderful yeah. thing. And very helpful in, in my own life. Yeah. You know? I mean, it really has. Yeah. As no. well as child rearing. I mean, I have, I have two boys that are, 
you know, nine and nine and seven now. And, yeah. you know, I mean, they're changing all the time and, you know, their needs and their, their mental complexities are always, are always growing and, mm. and, um, always having different social problems or school problems or, you know, problems with whatever else. I mean, yeah. all those things, you know, are, are, are always very interesting to me and, and how to solve those problems and yeah. make lives better, whether yeah. it be my own kids, my own dogs, my patients, my clients, whatever else. Yourself? I think that's a, that's a wonderful aspect of, of, uh, of my career. Yeah, no, I you agree. It's, it sounds wonderful. And, you know, the passion that you have is just coming straight through the phone. It's it's really, really obvious. And and I'm sure all of your clients and patients uh, and your family and your pets um, are so grateful to have you because it sounds like, um, you know, you, you've got a very special um, take on, on all of this and that your heart's really in it, which is so nice. I'm, I'm glad you say that. I, I, I hope everybody gets that. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Yeah, no, I'm sure they do. Um, well, just a couple more questions, Robbie, if that's okay. I, I'm just wondering, so um, sure. obviously your, your, um, your main focus is therapeutic exercise for um you know, for conditioning and also for rehabilitation post-surgical. Um, do you incorporate any other therapies alongside that, you know, such as acupuncture or do you work alongside any sort of other um, practitioners who, who perform any of those other, um, you know, whether it's massage or, or cold therapy or hydrotherapy and any of those? Um, I'm actually a human massage therapist too. Ah. So I incorporate a little bit um, of massage therapy usually within my assessment, you know, and, and, and the way I, I kind of assess dogs physically like that, or, you know, even just feel their range of motion and things like that. I incorporate a lot of those things in there. Mm -hmm. Um, so that the animal is less stressed, you know, and my approach to them is, is is less stressful. So that still kind of fits my goal of this, this, you know, you know, stress, almost stress-free kind of environment or, you know, as little stress as possible. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of laser therapy, okay. you know, yeah. and, um, when lasers, when, when, when lasers first came out, I was not convinced. I really was not, mm. you know, but as I think the machines have gotten better, I think, you know, treatment times can be shorter. And I do see, um, quite a bit of, um, of results from laser therapy. That's good. And then the other thing that, uh, we're, we're, we're big on in, in our hospital specifically is hyperbaric oxygen. Okay. Yep. You know, there's, there's a lot of research in hyperbarics and, you know, I'm really just starting to uncover it, you know, and starting to learn about it myself in just the last few years. But I tell you what, like I see a lot of neuro patients and, you know, that's one of the first things that we, you know, go to is, is hyperbarics. We actually do hyperbarics before hemilaminectomies. Okay. Um, We do one treatment and they go to surgery and then they have two following and then, um, you know, some of them, you know, I mean, if you've seen a lot of hemilambs, then, you know, you occasionally get a dog who's still really, really painful at a week out. Mm. And we do a lot of very careful follow-up and that's one of our biggest deals is pain management. Yeah. Um, and if, if they're real painful at that point in time, they come in and they come into the rehab office and we assess their pain. And that's one of the other first things that we go to. We go right back into hyperbaric. Um, okay. So that, you know, and that really does seem to help with a lot of inflammation and pain. Yeah, right. You know, we have a, 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 a wonderful um, chamber. It's made by a company called Seacrest. And um, Seacrest is um, like they're, 
their chamber is actually this is just this big acrylic tube. Yeah. And so you can see the animal the whole time. Um, it actually has this this phone that looks like um, it came from the 1980s. Um, <laughs> but you can actually talk to them in there too. Yeah. Um, you know, which is kind of interesting. You know, and and I, I thought it was kind of ridiculous when I first saw it, and I was like, no, you know what? They kind of have a hard time in there sometimes, and you know, talking them down from it a little bit can sometimes help. Yeah. You know, and distract them from from doing whatever they're doing a lot of the time. So how long are they in there generally? Um, the whole treatment, you know, getting up to pressure, staying at pressure, and then going back down is usually about an hour and a half. Oh, right. Quite long. You know, yeah. Um, it, it can be a little bit shorter than that, depending on, you know, what they're really trying to get. But usually, um, the actual pressurized treatment is 45 minutes. Okay. You know, but you have to get them up to that and then back down. And are they generally just in there by themselves and they're kind of just left to their own devices? and they sort of just sit or lie down or pace around? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if we have an animal with an incision or uh, even just an IV catheter or things like that, well, they have to wear an e-collar, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, And then there's, a, there's a, like, at our hospital, we have a, a certified hyperbaric oxygen technician, and they're certified in veterinary hyperbaric, and they sit there with them the whole time. You know, they mm-hmm. aren't in a separate room. They're literally, like, maybe, you know, two feet away from them. Okay. the whole time and watching yeah. and monitoring and everything else and the other kind of cool thing about the Seacrest machine you can you know run fluid pumps in there so you can actually give them IV fluids yeah. while they're in there yep. you can you know if they're if they're if they're having a problem or they seize or something like that you can take care of that yeah you know um you can actually even just use it as an oxygen cage so it kind of doubles as that as well yeah, yeah. um I've been real happy with it you yeah. know um the, the first one that I worked with it was it was a, a big it was basically just a big steel drum that was, you know, very thick steel and it had four little portholes that you could look through and it was very dark <laughs> and it was, I, I think it was a lot more scary, yeah. you know, for the patient. But this one, you know, I mean, like I do a lot of media, I do a lot of video for, you know, veterinary medicine in general, but more specifically, you know, my hospital mm. or the hospital that I work at. Mm-hmm. And so I watch a lot of those patients go in and out. And, you know, they seem to do a whole heck of a lot better than you think. That's really interesting. And I think originally yeah. they, I mean, hyperbaric oxygen therapy was, came from people who got the bends during scuba diving, right? Is that, that's what yeah. it's used for yeah. too? Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that, um, that one with the portholes just made me think it's probably, it was probably from a person yeah. who had to go in there. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really just an old school design, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, trying to, you know, get more atmospheres of pressure in there than that you really don't really need, you know, I think in, in, in modern veterinary medicine, at least, you know, yeah. we bring animals up to about two atmospheres. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's literally like being in two atmospheres, but yeah. that's, that's all we really kind of need yeah. you know, to do. Oh, you're lucky to have access to that. Kinda that neat. sounds great. Yeah. Sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky to have access to that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been very, very helpful with a lot of my neuro Yeah, patients. yeah. Wow, what a different world. Well, thank you, Robbie. I know that we're sort of getting to time now. Um, before we head off, are you able to tell our listeners where they can find more information about you and the work that you do and um, Southpaws? Yeah, um, you can visit my webpage, which is robpossible.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of um, conditioning information on there and some of the concepts that I teach. Um, you can also find um, 
the, the workshops that I do and a lot of the future workshops that will be happening. Um, and then, um, um, Southpaw's vet specialist.com mm-hmm. is, um, Southpaw's. Great. Um, and you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, whatever else as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, hopefully everyone will be jumping on there to read a bit more about you. Um, well, thank you again so much for being a guest today. It's been really interesting and a, a world that I don't know a huge amount about. So it's been very educational for me and I'm sure for everyone listening. Um, before we say farewell, are you able to leave our listeners with the final pearl of wisdom on therapeutic exercise? Um, I, I think the pearl of wisdom is that, you know, we should always be searching for better exercise and that we should really understand that exercise can be very adjustable and meet the needs of the patient or athlete and that that exercise should also be taught through positive reinforcement because if we don't have good positive reinforcement training within that, then the dog tends to not want to do it for very long, you know, and we can see that very easily um, in underwater treadmill work and things like that where the dog just doesn't want to do it as much. You know, if we motivate a dog and we motivate them to work just like people, then they work for you and they will jump through hoops of fire for you if you if you let them. That sounds great. That's a really nice note to finish on um, and perfect summary of our conversation. <laughs> Um, All right, Robbie. Well, thanks thanks again. It's been so nice to meet you um, over the phone and I hope you have a great day and weekend. You as well. Thanks again. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard and this is the Pure Animal Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes.